0: All right, well, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 12, we're continuing our study through the Gospel of John this week, and earlier this week in our staff meeting, I confessed to Jennifer and Andrew. I said, I got to be honest with you, I'm not sure I understand this text well enough to teach it. (laughs) That's what I told them, and it's true. I, I really did wrestle this week in my time of study, and I I feel like God has given me some things to say, and I feel uh, confident as I open God's Word for you this morning. Um, But I think one of the great benefits of this time uh, that we're going to spend together in God's Word is just the the truth that sometimes when we come to God's Word, um, there's wrestling involved. And we're going to talk a little bit about that as well this morning. But our study through the Gospel of John brings us this morning to the end of chapter 12. And this is a significant milestone in John's gospel account because this marks the end of Jesus' public ministry. From here on out, John is going to be describing for us the things Jesus did on the last night before he went to the cross. He's going to describe the cross and the trial and the resurrection. But this end of chapter 12 is the last final public teaching moment that jesus will have over the course of his three-year earthly ministry over the span of three years jesus has had a lot to say and john has chronicled much of it so far in his gospel and now he's going to try to summarize all of it in one last effort to explain himself before retiring from public view until of course he very publicly would go to the cross And I'm going to read two blocks of Scripture here back to back. First, I'm going to read verses 27 through 36. And then I'm going to read verses 44 through 51. And just to set the stage, again, this is Jesus' last closing remarks of his public ministry. Beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then I'll skip down for the moment to verses 44 through 51, where Jesus, and it says this, And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And thus concludes Jesus' public ministry and really his public remarks. This is his closing argument. And because this is a summary, really, what's happening here, this is a summary of all of his teachings up to this point in the Gospel of John. And because it's a summary, we have seen a lot of the things that he has said here in previous times together in the Gospel of John. We've been studying and thinking deeply about the things Jesus says here over the course of these past months. For example, Jesus talks about the centrality of God's glory as a motive for all that he was doing. We've certainly talked about that on previous Sundays. Jesus foretold how he would die and what this would accomplish. Jesus talked about himself as the light of the world who disperses the darkness, and he appealed to his audience to believe in the light that they may become sons of light. We've talked a lot about Jesus as light so far in our study of the Gospel of John. Jesus talks about how he and the Father are one, and how he is the perfect flesh and blood representation of the Father, and that he has perfectly obeyed all that the Father has given him to do and say. To see Jesus is to see the Father. And we've talked about this on scads of Sundays throughout our study of the Gospel of John. He talks about the power of his word to save to eternal life or to judge the wicked on the last day. And throughout this final public address, just as he did throughout three years of his earthly ministry, he is appealing to people to believe in him in order that they might be saved. In verse 36, he says, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. However, Immediately following this verse, John interjects as a commentator, and he inserts seven verses of commentary before Jesus resumes his final public comments in verse 44, and in the midst of that commentary might arise some confusion. In verses 37 through 43, right after Jesus urged his audience to become sons of light, John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, feels it necessary to explain why so few have responded to Jesus with a true saving faith. He says that even though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And then by way of an explanation, he continues, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here he's quoting from uh, from Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then in verse 39 comes a very strongly worded statement from John. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, and here he's quoting from Isaiah 6, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So the first reason John gives for so for why so few people have believed in Jesus. And really, it is amazing, isn't it? It is absolutely amazing. In John 11, all the hoopla and celebration of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry is because of what? We we studied this last week. It's because he had raised a man four days dead from the grave. Wow! What an obvious, amazing testament to the fact that he was operating with divine power and authority that he could raise a man who had even begun to rot where there was an odor in the grave from back to life. And on top of that, all the other signs that John has chronicled. And John feels it necessary to explain, despite the power and authority of his teaching, despite the manifest obvious works that he had done in front of so many, how do you explain the disbelief? And the first reason why he gives is that this was necessary to fulfill Old Testament prophecy concerning Jesus. The prophets of the Old Testament made hundreds of prophecies about the coming of Messiah, and during the course of his life, Jesus fulfilled all of them. And here, John is pointing out that the rejection of Jesus by the people was itself a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. However, that is not a very satis- satisfying explanation, is it? Because it instantly raises another question, which is why would God foretell that? Why would that be God's plan? You see, these verses are not just describing unbelief. They are, maybe troublingly, describing the causes of unbelief. And the cause cited by the prophet Isaiah and John is that God himself hardened hearts and blinded eyes so that, as verse 37 states so flatly, therefore they could not believe. And the question I had sitting in my office looking at my Bible was this, God, why on earth would you do that? Why? Why wouldn't God want them to see understand, turn, and be healed? Why would God call out to them to to believe while simultaneously blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts so that they could not? Why? Guys, that is a tough question. That is the question where I start thinking, maybe I shouldn't be a pastor. (laughs) Maybe I should see if Pastor Andrew wants to speak this Sunday. I don't know. Those are some really tough questions. And in the time we have left, I'm going to do my level best to try and answer them. But before I take a stab at it, let me just first point this out. At the heart of these verses is a great mystery. Exactly how does the perfect sovereign will of God intersect and work alongside Human responsibility. And there is something in the human mind that is both drawn to a mystery and that is also almost offended by the continuing existence of a mystery. Human beings are set apart from the rest of created beings by our intellect. And mysteries are like a knowledge vacuum that draws us in almost against our will we are naturally drawn into a mystery. Some of us are especially wired this way. As the the saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum, and our minds just can't tolerate this knowledge vacuum we call a mystery. Maybe you're the kind of person who's always taking things apart and putting them back together. Maybe you like to do a deep dive into personality types, so you can understand other people or maybe understand yourself. Or maybe you're a really analytical person, a problem solver, a voracious reader with an inquisitive mind. You just have an, a hunger to understand the world around you and that, my friends, is right and good. That is an expression of our God-given design And we should not turn that off when we come to the Bible. As we try to understand these controversial and mysterious verses, we have to keep in mind, I think, two things. One, it is really right and good when we encounter a deep, mysterious pool in God's Word that we should go do some spelunking. We should dive in, explore, try to map it out, not be intimidated by the mystery. In Mark 10, 15, Jesus famously said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. And we need to to know this, that here when Jesus says we must receive the kingdom like a child, he is not saying that we must come to him with a childish intellect, simple-minded and unquestioning. That's what some people think those verses are saying. Don't bother me with difficult, uncomfortable questions. I just believe like a child. I've come to Jesus in a simple, unquestioning way. But Jesus is not saying, leave your brain at the door when you read the Bible or go to church. There is no virtue, and God is not honored when we are intellectually lazy or incurious. If so, if that were true... God would have revealed himself in a coloring book, not the Bible. These 66 books of really deep stuff. God gave us an intellect so that we could know him, understand his word, and explore the world that he made for us to live in. He gave you your mind so that you could worship him with it. When Jesus says that we are to love him with our heart, our mind, and our spirit, He is asking you to worship him with your whole self. And part of how you were made is this deeply inquisitive, intellectual nature. You want to interact with deep things. You want to wrestle with truth. How does it all work together? That's how God made you, and God wants you to worship him in that way. God gave us an intellect so that we could know him, understand his word, and explore the world that he made for us to live in. He gave you your mind so that you could know him with it. And He is not glorified by blind, unthinking obedience, but by our desire to know Him, to understand Him, and live in relationship with Him. He does not want robots. He wants you, with all your messy questions and your sense of wonder and your desire to explore and understand things. God made man in such a way that we would be satisfied in Him. And part of my belief is that God is intellectually satisfying. He is the entry point into a whole world of ideas and possibilities. And we know for sure that this is not what Jesus meant when he called on us to receive the kingdom of God like a child because of other things that the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians 14.20 it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Or what about Ephesians 4:14, 4, speaking on the importance of growing to maturity in our intellectual understanding of the word of God? It says so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Or what about Hebrews 5: the Bible has an expectation that we would grow and mature as people who explore the depths of God and his word. What Jesus meant by calling us to receive the kingdom as a child was that we are to come to him as a complete and utter dependent. We bring him nothing but our need. It's like when a little baby can't feed themselves they can't go into the kitchen they can't reach up and pull food down out of the pantry they don't they should not turn on the oven <laughs> i almost said they cannot but sometimes they can they should not a child is somebody who is a complete and utter dependent on their parents and god says i don't want you to work with me to save yourself come to me as a child come to me as a complete and utter dependent i my glory, I won't share with anybody, not even you, and I'm going to save you. That's how the Christianity works. And that's really what separates it off from all the other world religions. Christianity is about God doing for us, not man jumping through God's hoops to earn something for ourselves. It's very different. And God is offended when we approach him as a partner. He says, come to me as a child, a dependent. But we should know and understand that God made us deeply intellectual beings so that we could worship Him with our minds. And then the second thing, at the same time, and this is the second thing we need to keep in mind, and I promise I'll get to the great mystery here in a second. This is very important, though. Even as we devote ourselves to being people who explore God in His Word, that we're not intimidated by the deep, mysterious pools, we're going to dive in, we're going to explore. We need to humbly acknowledge that after all our diving and swimming in these deep, mysterious pools, we may not, at the end of it all, ever reach the bottom. As high as the heavens are above the earth, says Isaiah 55, so is God higher than us. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, His ways are higher than our ways. Our minds want to break all things down into nice, neat, little, comprehensible units. But because the subject we are studying is God himself, we need to grow, we need to grow, grow, grow in our capacity and comfort level to live humbly in the midst of mystery. As long as we're in relationship with God, mystery will be the milieu in which we just live and exist. Because he's God and we're not. And I, you know, some people have broken God down into all these neat little boxes and they have, seem to have such a, a, a solid understanding of every aspect of who he is and his nature that I really look at them and it's almost like they've put God in a shoebox and how can they stand up and sing, How great is our God? Sing with me about this God I've contained. <laughs> right? It doesn't work that way. He is great. He is so beyond us that we really do, as a people, have to come to grips with this. We have to become very comfortable living in the midst of mystery. The Bible confronts us with lots of things that are very mysterious. And there are also times when we can apprehend the truth of something the Bible is telling us, even though we cannot really comprehend it. That is to say, we can see and perceive that something is true, but we may struggle to understand the nuts and bolts of how precisely it all works and is held together. This is something that I just encounter all the time in God's Word. God, I'm seeing something here. I know it's true because you've said it, but man, oh man, I don't understand it. I don't see how it could all work. So I'll just say this, we should never stop being explorers of the mysteries we encounter in the Bible. We should never just throw our hands up and say, ah, I just can't be known, so don't bother. But neither should we put faith on hold until all our questions are answered, because then you never arrive at the place of faith. Those questions will always be hanging out there. God will always be God. We will always be smaller than him. He will always be somebody who exists in the midst of a lot of mystery and operates with mystery but now after that long digression (laughs) let's return to the mystery at the center of our text for this morning i think that verses 37 through 41 make it perfectly clear that god planned the unbelief of israel I just don't find any language in here that could give me any wiggle room to explain it any other way. I'm going to read it again, and let's listen to some of the words in here that imply, or rather not imply, speak very plainly and flatly that this is a matter of planning. Though he had done, this is speaking of Jesus, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him so that, If you're in the habit of underlining things in your Bible, I encourage you to underline so that. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So here, uh, before we move on, John is saying that they did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled. That speaks to me of planning. And then in verse 39, therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So I find words like so that, therefore, and lest. He speaks in a very uh, direct way about God actively blinding and hardening. The agent of this blinding and hardening is God, according to Isaiah and, by extension, John. Now, throughout our study of the Gospel of John, I'll just say this, that's that's a hard truth. This is a deep, mysterious pool. Because at the same time, he is making an appeal for people to believe in him while simultaneously hardening hearts and blinding eyes. This, again, is very hard, very mysterious. Throughout our study of the Gospel of John, the sovereignty of God over both belief and unbelief has been repeatedly emphasized. It has been implied in the meaning and behind many of the miraculous signs that Jesus worked. Now, you might remember about a year ago, we worked our way through the miraculous signs of the book of John. And the central meaning of many of those signs was that God is the decisive author of salvation and belief. He is the one who works that and brings that into existence. It was also the central point of Jesus' nighttime conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3. You might remember that he told Nicodemus, Nicodemus said, I know some things about you. And Jesus responded by saying, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, stating that unless you are born and made new, regenerated, you can't see or enter into the promises. God is sovereign over belief and unbelief. Nicodemus, what you need is for God to work a miracle by making you born again so that you can see. In John 6, 44, Jesus says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is speaking about a God who operates sovereignly over belief and unbelief. He says in Isaiah in John 10, which really the whole chapter of John 10 is about the incredible sovereignty of God expressed through Jesus over belief and unbelief. But in John 10, 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I give them. No one can snatch. This is a God's speaking about his sovereignty over belief and unbelief. However, and again, here's the mystery. These words come sandwiched between two sections of Scripture where Jesus is actively appealing to the people to believe. He is also a God who sets before people life and death and urges them to make a decision. In verse 36, Jesus again exhorts the people, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. And in verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me. So the Bible is super clear about a couple things. The Bible is super clear that God is sovereign over belief and unbelief. But it is equally clear that we are all personally responsible, guilty, and worthy of blame for our unbelief. God is re- sovereign, and man is responsible. Both of these statements are true, whether we can understand it or not. The point at which the free will of man and God's perfect sovereign will intersect is probably somewhere out beyond the finite limits of the human mind. John raises the mystery, but he does not or perhaps cannot shed light on how it all works. And we are left apprehending the truth that God is sovereign and man is responsible, but not really comprehending how that can be or how that all works together. We do know from our study in John 3 that Jesus told Nicodemus again, he says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And what this means, these verses, is that when Jesus states that those who do not believe are condemned already, this means that the thing man deserves, that which man has earned, is condemnation and wrath. Ephesians 2.3 says that human beings are, by their very nature, objects of wrath. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. The belief of man, the unbelief of man, is a guilty, blameworthy unbelief for which we are responsible. So God is not so much picking winners and losers, Jesus' statement is that man has already rebelled and picked the losing side. But the great news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, and really I hope that this sermon does not harden hearts but softens them. I hope it doesn't blind people. I hope it opens eyes. The great news of the gospel is that God is so much more than fair, He is also merciful and full of grace. No man can ever charge God with being unfair because no man should ever hope to get from God what they deserve. What would fairness require? If we said, God, be fair, what would fairness look like? We should cringe in terror at the thought of God who is only fair, a God who only meets out what we deserve, what we've earned. I don't want God to be fair with me or my kids or any of you i want him to be merciful i pin everything to him as a god of mercy i want him to extend me grace not what i deserve what i richly deserve how can man look at god and say be fair what's fair So, Jesus says, Those who reject me are condemned already. That is their natural state. You are all living in a state of condemnation. I am here that some, whose eyes of their heart have been opened, might be delivered out of that awful, horrifying reality into another. I am here as an agent of grace and mercy. I'm not picking winners or losers. You have all chosen the worst lot. And I am here as a supreme expression of grace to take the place of many of you in that awfulness that you might have my place in heaven. That's not fair. That's grace. And that's what Christianity is all about. Now, by quoting these separate passages from Isaiah, which is what John does, John quotes from Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. John gives us some insight into how God blinded and hardened the hearts of Israel. In Isaiah 53, from which his first quote is drawn in John 12:38, we find a description of the suffering servant whom we now know to be Jesus. And immediately following the verse that John quotes in verse 38, Isaiah goes on to describe Jesus in this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. So the point is that Isaiah prophesied that this suffering servant would be rejected, Israel would not believe in him, which is why John, in John 12, 38, it says, Who has believed? But why did they not believe? Isaiah says it's because he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He didn't match what they were looking for. Their fallen, pride-polluted hearts looked at Jesus in all his humble lowliness and all of his ordinary humanness, and they said... Next, (laughs) what else you got? I have, at, at different times in my life, suffered from a phenomenon very similar to this. Maybe you have, too, where I was blinded to something even though there was nothing wrong with my natural sight. When I was a police officer, for example, I remember one night very distinctly, I was out on patrol And I was driving around the city, and I heard the dispatcher say there was a bar fight at one of the bars downtown. And as I was responding, the dispatcher gave us more information. It's a white male. He fled the scene, and he's wearing a red sweatshirt. So as I'm driving towards the bar, what am I doing? I'm scanning for males wearing a red sweatshirt. But later, when we looked at surveillance camera from another business on the same street... We saw that as soon as he exited the bar, what did he do? Took off his red sweatshirt. Uh, The man could not, you couldn't say the man was smart, but you could say he was crafty. There is a difference between the two. He took off his red sweatshirt, and so as I was driving, I drove right by this man, but because I was scanning for a red sweatshirt, I didn't recognize him for who he was, and I just kept going. And what I think this is telling us is that the Israel that Jesus came to was suffering from kind of a spiritual tunnel vision. They were were wired in such a way that the Messiah they wanted, the Messiah they expected, the, the way they wanted God to show up with power was not a meek and lowly Jesus who would go to the electric chair, basically, who would be Dragged before the courts as a common criminal and hung up on a cross. What is that? Next, what else you got? That's not what we want. That's not what we're looking for. And so they're blinded to the excellence, the satisfying beauty of who he is. The need-meeting nature of Jesus is totally missed because they're scanning essentially for a red sweatshirt. One of the reasons why I think it is helpful to see that God planned the unbelief of Israel by giving them a Messiah that they were not inclined to see as a Messiah is this. The reason that Jesus came into the world was to die in the place of sinners. Mark 10.45 says that, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for sinners. And it was in dying that he became the Savior of the world, my Savior, yours. The unbelief of Israel, Jesus' rejection by his own people, was the path that God planned for him so that he would die in our place and make salvation possible for the whole world, extending even as far as Aroostook County, Maine. Brothers and sisters, we are accepted in the presence of God because Jesus suffered rejection when he came to his own, and his own received him not. We're accepted by God because Jesus was rejected by men. So this very sad news, this very difficult, troubling passage, is actually cause for joy when we understand it in its fullness. And please note this, in the last three verses, I'm going to revisit here again what Jesus said. The very last things he said were these. In his public ministry, he'll say more to Pontius Pilate, to his disciples. But this is the last thing he says to the general public. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The words that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Please note in there, Jesus makes no mention of miracle signs as the basis of belief. He mentions words and what he's spoken and what has been given him to speak over and over and over again as the basis of a person's faith. John Piper says this, he says, We know Jesus and we know the Father and we are saved and we have eternal life through the words of Jesus because they are the very words of God. And they have the unique divine power to bring Jesus himself to the human soul. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 6.63 Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. John 6.68 And in verse 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, the word. And with that, Jesus' public ministry is over. That's the last note he strikes. And for 2,000 years, we have had exactly what we need, the words of Jesus, the word of God. And this is how we know him. This is how we receive him. This is how we fellowship with him, the word of God. And I close on that note because this is the challenge going forward from here. I think there are many Christians who secretly wonder if the word is enough. I think Paul was wrestling this when he said to the Corinthians, I have resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to bring you a big performance. I'm not going to bring you a fog machine. I'm not going to be the best speaker you've ever heard. But I just decided to give you nothing but the word and see if that would do the work, believe that that would do the work. Because when we talk about people being blinded to something even though nothing is wrong with their natural sight. Do you know what it reminds me of? (laughs) It reminds me of when I was a kid and my mom would have to give me some medicine and she would grind it up and put it in jelly on a spoon so I wouldn't know it was there. And I think very often the church tries to do this with the Word of God. We say, come on out to the thing. It's going to be great. There's going to be food. It's going to be incredible stuff happening. We'll probably talk about Jesus a little bit. (laughs) Just a little try and sneak him in there. And really what's betrayed in that moment in that spirit is that what really sells is something other than the Word. But here's a truth that I think we need to keep in mind. What you win a person with is what you win them to. Tozer came up with that quote, and I really like it. What you win a person with is what you win them to. I remember one time, and I was struggling in a very dark year of ministry down in Florida. I love my church in Florida. It's an incredible church. But that, we were going through a very tough time. And on one of those Sundays, you you just would go through months with the same group, small group of people that would come, and you're praying for somebody to come. Somebody come, please, God, send more. (laughs) And one Sunday, a couple did. And they had kids with them. And it was an awful Sunday. My preaching was just deplorable, I thought. It was like one of the worst sermons I'd ever given. And everything was just kind of weird that morning. uh, And I could see on their face, oh, we're not coming back here. And I went out and I grabbed them in the parking lot afterwards and I said, I know what that was. (laughs) But I need you here. Please come back. And they did. But do you know what I won them with? You're super-duper important, and these people suck. And so from that point on, what I won them with, I won them too, which is that we're God's gift to your church, and these people need something better. And they always had a posture of criticism. We need to be very careful with what we win people to when we talk about the gospel of Christ. Because if we set out to entertain people, if we set out to win them with food, (laughs) or whatever the case is, we're winning them to those things, truly. And what's needed is the Word, the Word, the Word. In all of our evangelism efforts, how much are we speaking the Word of God to people who need to hear it? Or how much are we just hoping that they'll see Jesus in us and maybe in a fuzzy, abstract kind of way desire him? How much do we tell people the gospel truth that we find in the Word? Truly, that's what's needed. And would we win gospel-shaped converts if we didn't do that? I don't think so. It's a... Perverse thing that today sometimes the church blinds people's eyes to Jesus by trying to make him more palatable or relevant or whatever. Jesus said, You have my word. My word is all you need. And in the end, we'll be judged on the basis of that word. One of the great things I take away from this verse and other like verses that emphasize the sovereignty of God over belief and unbelief is this, that the, sh- the burden of winning a soul is not really on our shoulders. The church is this miraculous mingling of divine power and ordinary human means. We go out to faithfully proclaim the word of God, to give people the bread of life, but he is the one who broke the bread and made it sufficient. He provided it. He's the one who works the miracle. We just deliver it. Miraculous divine power, ordinary human means, do you believe that the word of God is enough? Do you believe it's what's needed? Or do you believe you have to be a good speaker? Do you believe you have to be something to pull off a conversion? Or do you believe God when he says, my word is what's needed? This is something I was confronted with for sure as I wrestled with this very difficult text. And I came away... Uh, you know, in the verses that precede this, and I'll close with this observation. I promise I'll close. <laughs> At some point, every sermon kind of turns into a, like a hostage negotiation in reverse. Like, how do we get them down off of there? This is it. In the last section, remember those Greeks came to Philip and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And he went to Jesus and said, I've got these guys who want to come see you. I really think that's what's happening here when Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus is the Word made flesh. That's how John begins his gospel. This is Jesus. He took on flesh and lived this book out. And he says that you still have the Word. And so when people in our place, we would want them to see Jesus, here's how we do it. We give them the Word. Let's let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we have certainly done some spelunking this morning in the midst of a deep, mysterious pool. And God, I don't think in all of our swimming and exploring and wrestling, God, I don't think we got to the bottom of this thing. God, I just grew in my appreciation for what a big mystery this is. I don't feel that I've bedded it down in human comprehension. But God, I apprehend some truths, and I embrace them with all my heart this morning. God, I believe that you have worked a miracle, a sovereign miracle. You have caused me and my friends here in this room to be born again. You have miraculously given us something that we did not have within our ability to conjure up within ourselves. God, you have given wisdom that's not natural to the fallen mind. You have given a humility. God, you've given the fruits of the Spirit. You've given salvation and life to people who were dead and objects of wrath. So, Father, that's certainly one thing. God, I celebrate your sovereignty over these things. If it was up to me, it would be hopeless, and I wouldn't be saved today. God, I certainly celebrate that you are fair, but you're more than that. You're not just fair. Father, the cross is certainly a symbol of fairness. All that wrath and punishment was poured out. But it is also, and more closely to my heart, God, a symbol of mercy and grace. Because Jesus took his place, he took my place under your wrath. And he elevated me to his reward. And God, that is a deep mystery. But God, I certainly celebrate that. Father, there is so much mystery in here. But God, those things that we know, we celebrate. Those things that we've apprehended. And God, when we come to the mysterious things, to the difficult things, we are able to enter into them because of so many things we know with bedrock certainty. God, it is not mysterious that you are a God of love. You have not made your nature mysterious. You are a fair God, a just God, a righteous God. You are a God who loves goodness. You are a God who deals fairly. You are a God, Lord, of great mercy and grace. And so, Father, we ask your forgiveness for those times when we come to verses in your word that make us think otherwise. Because in wrestling with them, we're taken into deeper levels of understanding of just how amazing and excellent you are. God, help us to explore. Help us to live humbly in the midst of mystery. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.